It's August 1st, 2019. A patient walks into my office, says, Doc, I can't stand the suffering. I want you to help me die. What do I do? Hello and welcome to One Other Thing, the official podcast of Virtua Physician Partners. As you heard from the opening clip of this episode, we're talking about something that is changing the landscape of end-of-life care in New Jersey. That something is newly enacted legislation called the Medical Aid in Dying for the Terminally Ill Act. As a quick bit of context, the bill was introduced on January 9, 2018 to the Assembly Health and Senior Services Committee. The bill then circulated through the New Jersey State House for over a year before passing out of both houses on March 25, 2019. The bill was ultimately signed into law by Governor Murphy on April 12th. Now, looking ahead, the law will be implemented across the state on August 1st, 2019. And since the law will change a great deal and is new territory for many, we want to get out ahead of any questions you might have regarding what's in the law and how it will affect the way you practice medicine. To do so, we're featuring three prominent voices on this episode who represent expertise we can all learn from. Those voices are Dr. Tarun Kapoor, President of VPP, Dr. Stephen Goldfein, Chief Medical Officer at Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice, and Chris Hughes, Assistant Vice President of Government Relations at Virtua. Before getting into the conversations with Tarun, Steve, and Chris, I just want to point you to the show notes of this episode. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the text of the law in case you want to have it up as you listen, or if you want to refer to it at any point after. And now, without further ado, I'm going to turn the mic over to Tarun. Thanks so much for joining us uh, today, Chris. So, Chris, can you give a little bit of background about yourself and your role with uh, Virtual Government Relations Team? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Christopher Hughes. I am an AVP of Government Relations uh, here at Virtua. I've been with Virtua for about two years. I actually came to the organization after about 10 and a half years of state government experience, including in the legislature. Uh, there was actually a time where I staffed the committee where this bill moved through at some point. So I, I did staff the bill at one point. So I have a little bit of a knowledge from both the legislative perspective, but now really from the government relations side too. And uh, our role with government relations here is to advocate for uh, good public policy that benefits both the hospital, but as well as our patients, our clinicians, the community, everyone that we serve. And it goes from the federal level all the way down to the local level. Well, so that's that's a perfect tee up for the actual discussion of the medical aid and dying bill uh, set to go uh, in effect August 1st. There have been several states ahead of New Jersey on this one. Uh, it goes back probably 20 years with Oregon being the first. How did it come to fruition that this was the time for New Jersey to have this discussion and, on, and for this bill? In particular, this bill, this law, was sponsored by Assemblyman John Berzicelli of the 3rd Legislative District in South Jersey. Um, he first introduced it back in 2012, and when he had his first hearing on it in the uh, Assembly Health Committee, one of the people that testified was actually his sister-in-law. And his sister-in-law was someone who, was, who during her testimony, revealed that she had uh, terminal illness and that her family itself had actually suffered, and it was, as well as family friends, had suffered um, self-inflicted suicides uh, as a result of terminal illnesses, and they were looking for a better option for, for treatment going forward. Um, that year, the bill only went through one committee. It never went through a second committee. It never went through a full vote. Uh, but uh, interestingly, it, sh- it started off with actually requiring voters to approve the bill to eventually become law. It w- wasn't just the legislators passed it and the governor signing it. It would, in- it would involve a voter referendum. 
So then now we're in a place where it does move forward. What were the factors besides uh, this emblem's uh, daughter's testimony? What other factors uh, led to, to it going forward? So I think a lot of it was uh, slow, persistent, methodical, a dedicated approach to developing legislation. Um, I mentioned the original bill included a voter referendum. Uh, the second session when the bill came back, that was eliminated. Uh, they amended the bill saying, you know, we already see that public polling shows that the public's in favor of this. We see that there are additional states that are doing it. Uh, concerns that have been raised by the community and opposition we can address in legislation. And throughout a number of sessions, little changes were made incrementally to address them. Um, you know, the next session in 2014-2015, uh, the bill actually did get a full vote in front of the assembly and it received 41 votes. Uh, it did have a hearing in the Senate uh, committee. It was released from a committee, but released without recommendation. It wasn't until 2018, or I'm sorry, 2018-2019 legislative session when both houses voted on it the same year. 41 votes in the assembly in the affirmative, 21 votes in the Senate. That's what you need to send it to the governor's office. I think what's important though is there was actually a quote back from 2016 when the Senate didn't consider the bill that really frames out the process for doing it. And it's from Senate President Sweeney. Um, while at the time, Governor Christie said he had grave concerns over the bill. The Senate president indicated, you know, by passing the bill, I'll quote, it'll send a signal if we gather enough votes in both houses that a new gover governor hopefully would recognize that people should be able to end their lives with dignity. But he also recognized it would be a hard bill. And lo and behold, in 2017, New Jersey did elect a new governor who had the opportunity to sign that bill when it was placed on his desk earlier this year. Oh, and thanks so much for that description, because now this is, sounds like the perfect segue to actually talk about what's in the bill with Dr. Goldfein. Well, Steve, you and I have known each other for a long time, but maybe not all of our listeners know who you are. Tell, please tell us about yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm Stephen Goldfein. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice. Um, my role is really to act as a liaison between the community uh, and uh, palliative care and hospice care. I've worked with Virtua for many, many years, uh, and I'm just happy to be here. And, and you know, prior to your time uh, with palliative care, you were a family medicine doctor. Yeah. What, what helped you, you know, make that transition? I think that what I found is that, especially in palliative care, hospice care, you really get led into a very vulnerable time of patients' lives that you can really help them get through a very difficult situation. Uh, the benefit to the family is, is so dramatic. You take a very uh, difficult situation and you bring them relief and comfort, which is what all doctors want to do. Well, that, that really you know, is an opportunity for us to talk, you know, an area that you're very passionate about and, and helping educate clinicians uh, about medical aid and dying. So now let's say it's August 1st, um, physician's in his or her office and patient walks in or comes in to, and says, you know, I, I know about the medical aid and dying process or bill. I would like you to help me with this. How, how does a physician even start the process? First of all, can it be anyone other than a physician? Yeah, it really cannot be. It can only be a physician, not a nurse practitioner or, or a, a PA. So the doctors are, are responsible for the, doing that. I think the first important thing is before August 1st is looking at yourself right now in terms of your value and your culture and understanding whether you can participate or not participate. Uh, we all come from various backgrounds, various cultures. Uh, and there are some doctors that have really said that, you know, this is not something that I, want, I wish to be involved with. Uh, and once you understand your own internal drive and your own internal culture, then you need to understand the law and what is, res what is res expected of you as a physician to, to participate in this, uh, in this process. Uh, when you look at the process, it's been very, it's very interesting. So what is the requirements? What are the eligibility? 
And really the eligibility is an adult older than 18, the patient doesn't need to have uh, capacity to make decisions, and they need to do it voluntarily. So they cannot be coerced into doing that. They need to self-administer, meaning that you need to give yourself your own medication, and you need to have a terminal diagnosis with a prognosis of six months or less. So there's a lot of requirements to actually get into the program. Um, as an attending physician, you need to actually verify all of those requirements. You need to verify that they are residents of New Jersey. Uh, so, you know, when you get your driver's license, you get those six points of, of verification. As a doctor, you're not, you're not doing that verification. You need to make sure they're, they're residents of New Jersey, uh, and they're doing it voluntarily. And I think that's really the most important part of that. Um, the concern with physicians um, is that how can I really do all of the stuff that I need to do? And a lot of docs opt out just because of the immense amount of paperwork and filings they need to do. Uh, when that happens, you need to then refer that patient to a physician that is willing to participate in the program. So if, if you are willing to do it, and even starting before we can get into the concepts of informed consent and the actual medications, what are the papers? Where are the papers? Where do you get them from? So right now, um, they're being developed. If you actually look into the, the bill itself, they did develop a, a little check sheet. I think the New Jersey um, Hospital Association is putting together a, a, a packet that will be available online. Uh, and actually, if you go online, actually, uh, Colorado is a very nice set of documents that you can almost copy and paste that will show you all the, all the eligibility requirements. Uh, essentially, the requirements are, are, can be onerous at times. So the, the patient needs to request uh, medical aid in dying two different times verbally, 15 days apart. They, they, they then need to ask for a, do it in written, a written form. And then after that, doctors can start writing the medications. Um, the doctor needs to then, again, document uh, that these requests have been made, and as well as the conversations that have, that have happened. Also during this period of time, we need to uh, really look at the terminal diagnosis. Is this person truly terminal? And doing a lot of hospice work, that's not an easy conversation. You know, we always str struggle with that um, all the time. So we have to figure out how that happens with these patients. Once we determine their terminal, we then need to do a couple of things. Again, make sure they have capacity, evaluate them for depression or for a psychiatric illness, and they don't need to see a psychiatrist. And it's very interesting, when you look at the organ experience, only about 4% of patients in Oregon actually have been seen by a psychiatrist in a 20-year experience. So most of the time, the family physicians or the attending physician is determining that patient's mental status and lack of depression, lack of psychiatric illness. The other thing that they have to do is they have to really consider are there alternative treatments or um, other treatments that should happen. So for example, somebody walks in with a stage four lung cancer, have they been given the option of an oncology evaluation? Is there immunotherapy, other treatments that might make that patient's life better and reduce some of the problems? And then finally, they have to then offer alternative treatments in terms of symptom management. So have they been seen by palliative care? Have they been seen by hospice for an evaluation? Uh, they don't have to actually, the patients don't have to actually go and have these evaluations. They need to be offered them. And what's interesting, again, back to the Oregon experience, when we look at a 20-year experience, about 90% of patients that requested uh, medical aid in dying were already on a hospice program. All right, so, so that sounds like it's a potentially an important takeaway for the listener is if this person, this patient who's requesting assistance or aid has not been evaluated by a palliative care uh, clinician or a hospice clinician, that may be a, a reasonable, very reasonable first step. I, I think it should be. I think that the key with that is trying to figure out why the patient is making that request. Um, again, going back to Oregon, which is really our largest experience, uh, patients don't request medical aid in dying because of pain or symptom management because they're usually well managed. They request it because they have lack of control of their environment. 
Uh, and that really is the major reason for that. So as a palliative care provider working with families and as a attending physician, the question is why are we asking for medical aid in dying and trying to figure out how that affects the patient and the family. So one of the things you mentioned is you know, places where this can occur, and, and, you, and you stated that the patients actually have to be, be able to take their own medication. So now, and, and also they're 15 days apart, yes. the, the request, and, and specifically you stated written requests, so this is not a telephone encounter, these are based, I'm assuming face-to-face visits, 15 days apart. Yeah, and, and I would say that's exactly correct. We want to have a good conversation around this. I think that protects the doctor, too. I think the, when we look at, at why doctors are opposed, the fear is uh, legal action. You know, so if I have not completed the right paperwork, if I have written a medication that is potentially lethal, have I had the right conversation? So it really is having a good relationship with, with your patients, having those conversations, uh, and being engaged and involved in their decision-making, uh, and then that shared decision-making, which is really important. So one of the other pieces then, it sounds like because of that 15-day separation window, the hospital environment is not really going to be the suitable or a suitable location for this to typically occur. And, and I would agree with that. I think that this should be done between the patient and their attending physician, hopefully family doctor, if the family doctor is participant in it. But really in an acute care setting, I think it's very difficult to have that relationship with that patient. Also, the timing doesn't work out. So again, that 15 days uh, allows the patient to clear their head. Uh, the second part of the, of, the, of the law is they actually need a second physician uh, to actually verify the terminal diagnosis, to verify that they have the capacity to make the decision, to verify that they're not depressed or have no psychiatric illnesses. So you actually need those two doctors to actually verify those issues. So, Steve, you've been spending a significant amount of time educating clinicians about about the, the law or the incoming law, and, and and it's a little bit difficult right now because not all the paperwork is fully vetted out, all the resources are fully vetted out. But as you're talking to to doctors about it, you, you talk about their fears or what 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 are they expressing to you uh, their concerns in, in 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 going forward with this? Yeah, I think the biggest fear that I hear is you know. Can I get into legal trouble uh, if, you know, if the family comes back and accuses me of doing something wrong? And I think with the documentation, you're, you're prevented from that happening, and the law is written so well that the provider is really uh, in a safe zone. I think the issue um, is that we as physicians are trained to make people better and cure people, and this seems counterintuitive to that on some level. But the big fear is, you know, legally, am I going to get into trouble doing this? I think the other issue is how am I, as a pr- practitioner, able to determine whether that person is depressed or not depressed. Um, and so I think that's part of the, the, the other barriers that I see. So regarding the depression piece, how, how, how do you typically assess that and make that decision? Yeah. We typically do, do, do scales. So we do a PQH9 in our office on almost every patient that we see. If I'm really concerned, I'll send them off to see a, 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 either an APN psychiatric practitioner or a psychiatrist to get evaluation. And, and if the clinician states to themselves, you mentioned early on the self-reflection, whether or not I even want to do this. Uh, but if they, if you make a decision that you don't want to do this globally or in a specific case, you're just not sure what to do, then what is the obligation to the physician at, at that point? We have to refer to a practitioner that's willing to participate in, in, in the discussion and in the medical aid in dying. So uh, there will eventually be a list of physicians that actually are participating in this. Uh, and I think it's better to keep that number in a small number, if you look at, the, again, the Oregon experience, which, which is our largest experience, there's only about 50 doctors that are actually participating in the program and actually writing these uh, medications for these patients. Uh, and that makes sense to me because that way you have a, a, group of pati- a group of physicians that, you know, really understand the process and do it in the right way. 
so you know we're, we're recording this in, in in early July. Law becomes effective in August, but this will be an area of ongoing development. Where will where should physicians be looking towards for ongoing resources for updates? Where would you, you know, recommend them? How do they keep apprised of the latest updates? Yeah, and there's, there's actually a couple of good resources. So um, Compassion Choices is a great website if you have any um, desire to do any kind of research. They, they have been around for a long time, uh, and they have a lot of good information for physicians. It can be a little one-sided because they're very, they're much in favor of medical aid and dying, but I think it's a really great place to start. Uh, I would look for the New Jersey Hospital Association uh, as another place to get information. Um, I think the other place that you want to look into is really your medical society. The medical sides have been kind of mixed on their approach to this. The American Academy of Palliative Physicians is actually uh, in a studied neutrality position. The American Academy of Hospital of Palliative Physicians also studied neutrality. Uh, the AOA uh, actually is opposing it. Uh, and the AMA, I'm not sure. They were there last week. They were kind of talking about it. Uh, I think they still are in, in opposition to it at this point in time. Steve, this is, you know, this concept has been called medically assisted suicide, physician assisted suicide in the past. What is different about medical aid in dying? The important part with medical aid in dying is that it's really the patient's driving the process. They self-administer. And what's interesting is when you look when the patient does pass away, the death certificate is really a natural cause. Uh, and this is important because if it's a suicide, then they may not get their life insurance or get some of the other benefits that they're, they're supposed to have. So by having a natural cause, um, they're able to get those benefits. Do you recommend patients fill out a pulse form in advance of going down this path? So I think that a pulse form, which is the practitioner order for life-saving treatment, which is an advanced directive that determines what kind of care that you want or you don't want, it's important that that document is completed. Um, it's imp the reason it's important is that when you take the medication, obviously the, uh, the intent is to end your life. And we don't want somebody walking in on you and then trying to resuscitate you. Um, which is interesting because when you look at the bill itself, there's no obligation to inform your family uh, that you're actually going to participate in this program. So it can actually happen that way. Or, God forbid, you're in a hospital situation, you take the medication, which we talked about the hospital earlier. Uh, you would not want the code team coming and shocking you and intubating you to, to try to bring you back. So then you open up another interesting dynamic here, and that is the, the family's knowledge of, of, of a patient's desire to have medical assisted uh, me medical aid you're saying that they don't necessarily have to be informed or what is the obligation of the physician to yeah. keep family informed yeah so it's really the patient determination the patient can determine who wants to be engaged or involved um, and the physician cannot break that confidentiality so there is no obligation to inform family and notify the family that the patient is going to be uh, participating in medical aid and dying uh, this is problematic to me because Again, I think we want to have a conversation with the patient and their family. And I see all care is delivered as a family unit, not just a patient unit. So I think it's important that we as doctors encourage our patients that are participating in this program to notify their families. Um, there is a requirement for witnessing. And the witnesses are very interesting because they, they need, you actually need to have two witnesses that say to the patient, say to you as a physician, the patient is doing this voluntarily and does have capacity. Uh, one of those witnesses cannot be a family member or cannot benefit from the death of the patient. Uh, so, again, we want to engage the family as much as possible. And that goes back to having that conversation with the patient and the family. We want to make sure that we are, as we have goals of care conversations, it is an open conversation that we are really determining what is appropriate for that patient. 
do we have any idea or understanding of how many of these cases we expect to see um, in, across the state or, or how many cases an individual physician may see in a given year? The, the numbers are going to probably be very low. So as we look at, again, the Oregon experience, there's been about 2,400 requests over about a 20-year period of time, and about 55 or 6% of those patients actually completed the actual taking the medication. So I think the numbers will be low. Um, I think that's because of the determination of self-administration as well as that terminal diagnosis. So when I would think about a, a patient for, for whom medical aid in dying would be appropriate, it would be a patient like someone with you know, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, or someone with severe end-stage dementia. But actually, there are some nuances to this law regarding these patients. Yeah, there really are. So the, the law actually excludes those type of patients because they have to have capacity to make the decision, first of all. They have to be a capable patient. And second, they have to self-administer. So an ALS patient that, by the time they can become terminal, typically does not have use of their arms. And a dementia patient can't make that decision. So they would be excluded from this uh, law in medical aid and dying. So during our discussion, we've talked about the multiple nuances to the law and, and applying it correctly, you would think that the gut of gut check from a number of clinicians would be, you know, I, I'm going to send this patient to my palliative care partner or my hospice partner, but that may not be the, the provider or partner who actually would prescribe uh, the medications. And I think for years, hospice has really tried to position themselves in terms of not a place of dying, but a place of living and a quality life uh, organization. I think it's difficult in today's world as you start talking to these providers and saying, now we're going to start ending life. And I think a lot of providers have chosen not to be participant within this. A lot of the physicians that get into hospice and palliative care also have that view of, I really want to make life a high quality, uh, and I'm really about quality of life, not necessarily ending life. So I think you have to really find the partners in your area that would be participant, uh, and they may just not be part of the hospice environment. So, so as we wrap up, what would you say would be a, you know, a couple key takeaways you would want uh, a listener of this podcast to, to think about and reflect on? I think the most important thing to me is understand who you are and what your values are. Can you participate? Uh, if you choose to participate, really understand the laws, the requirements that you have to document, uh, which will protect you. Uh, but I think more importantly, have a conversation with your patients, whether you're participating or not participating. Find out why they're asking for the for medical aid in dying, and really try to help them through that process of of why that they're asking for the medical aid in dying. Steve, thanks so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to One Other Thing, the official podcast of Virtua Physician Partners. If you are a part of VPP and you liked this episode, please be sure to hit subscribe. Once you become a subscriber, you'll be the first to know when we release a new episode. As a quick look ahead, we're working on episodes about VPP strategy around behavioral health, network integrity, and many other topics you'll want to tune in for. But before we sign off, we just have to say that the content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
Always seek the advice of a physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Virtua Physician Partners. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon to discuss one other thing. Take care, everyone.